Well, as we come to our text tonight from Psalm 9, you'll find that uh, on page 555 in your pew Bibles, Psalm 9. And, and it's interesting, we mentioned that Spurgeon talked about the connectivity of Psalms 7 through 10 and uh, said that really uh, as Psalm 8 closes, we immediately open into 9 and 9 into 10. Many of the early manuscripts, both in the Greek and Latin, that is as those Greek and Latin versions translated the Hebrew text, they actually combined Psalms 9 and 10. So a lot of those versions, you will find that there is one less psalm in those texts, and it is because Psalms 9 and 10 are joined. There is a distinction in those two, in that primarily we find that Psalm 9 is more individualistic, Psalm 10 a bit more corporate, and a little different uh, version on the lament that exists in that psalm. We'll actually be getting there when we come to the next Lord's table in a couple of weeks. But they are indeed very similar, although distinct. Our psalm tonight is structured a bit like a song. It's kind of a, a unique song. Of course, that's no surprise in that the psalms are songs. But this is a bit different. It's like a, a song with two refrains that, or, or two choruses. And then there are two stanzas that support each chorus. So it's kind of like two songs in one almost. We might think of it, if you're familiar with music, which my children are and I'm not, at least from a te technical point of view, it's a little bit like an opera with two movements to it. There are two distinct components in this psalm. And because of this, I've titled our message, A Resounding Chorus of Exaltation. A Resounding Chorus of Exaltation. And I believe that's, that's just what we'll see tonight. We'll see this resounding chorus that exalts God and that proclaims Him as the one who is in charge of all things, even amidst tremendous trials. With that, let's Let's look at our text and at our first point tonight. I've titled our first point for our message, The First Chorus of Praise. This is one of those messages where the structure for the text is going to be um, very uh, uncomplicated, very engineer-like. And uh, so hopefully it'll be easy for you to follow along with. There are two points, and then there are two sub-points under each of those. So... Our first point, uh, as I mentioned, is the, the first chorus of praise. The first chorus of praise. And it's in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 9. Follow along as I read, won't you please? I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O most high. Well, this, this begins our resounding chorus of exaltation, and it becomes our first chorus of praise. One thing that we want to note, even before those verses, to back up just a bit, if you have the, uh, the subscriptions to the Psalms in your Bibles, you'll see that below the title Psalm 9, you'll have the words, for the choir director, on Muth Leben, a psalm of David. Now, a lot of times that doesn't mean much to us. There are oftentimes some musical connotations to that. And some have thought that's the case with this particular psalm. 
for the choir director is very common. We see that in many of the Psalms. It indicates that there is a musical element that's connected with this. But it is that next phrase, on muth labem, that really gathers so much attention. Some have felt like that this is uh, another musical distinction, that this is perhaps a particular type of instrumentation or even a particular tone or beat that would go along with the psalm as it was being played. The interesting component is that the literal translation of that Hebrew phrase is actually the death of the sun. The death of the sun. Some have said again that that might just be a musical incantation, but many commentators would say that it is just too unique. It would be the only place in the Psalter where there was only one use of a particular musical distinction. So what most believe is that this really is a place where David, Spurgeon being one of those, where David is reflecting after the loss of one of his children. We don't know if this is after the loss of his child from uh, his infidelity with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. Uh, or whether it was one of his other sons who were killed, Absalom, or perhaps one of the others. But most believe, and I would agree as we look at the tone of the psalm, that really that's what's being spoken about, is the death of the son. And particularly as we get into verse 3 and forward, you will see more of that component. But what is so interesting is the way he begins in these first two verses. That this really is an incredible chorus of praise. I mean, look at those first four statements in each of those stanzas. I will, I will, I will, I will. This is, this is how we need to be. Whatever follows when it's re with respect to God, that's what our heart's desire needs to be. Yes, Lord, I will. Whatever you would have for me, I will. It takes us back, doesn't it, to the wonderful text in Isaiah 6, which Stephen preached for us a few weeks back. And as he goes through that amazing vision of God and we get down into verses 7 and verse 8 and the Lord says as he is speaking literally within the Trinity, who will I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. You know, as we've got this upcoming outreach and I'm so excited there are a few of us in our congregation who you better be ready for because I've unleashed them and Bobby is going to be going everywhere to talk to y'all to make sure you're out on the night. Because he loves going and it's a wonderful time. And, and it is just such a special opportunity for us to reply in the same way. Lord, I will. And what does David say that he will? I will give thanks. I will tell of you. I will be glad. I will sing your praises. These are, these are wonderful places for us to recognize a hard attitude of God. But now take it back. To that superscription in the death of the son and, and Lord whatever is your desire I will David's heart for the Lord is leaping off the page at us and do these not provide applications that ought be our desire in all circumstances but how much more in difficult ones I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart what a beautiful representation. We see a, a similar stanza to that in Psalm 86 and in verse 12. And there in Psalm 86 and verse 12, it says, I will give thanks to you, 
O Lord, my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever. There is this element to our giving thanks to God that is a resounding chorus of our heart which ought ring through all of our lives. Yes, there are times where we struggle. There's times where that road seems hard that we're on. But nonetheless, it is a time for us to praise God. Because rest assured, beloved, He would not have us on this road or any road where He takes us if He didn't know that He was going to carry us through. This is the truth that we know in Scripture that all things work together for good to those who know God and who are called according to His purposes. God is going to carry us through. He's going to carry you through in whatever trials are going on in your life. And what he wants from us is for us to continually be able to proclaim that I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. That phrase, all of my heart, wherever we see it in the scripture, it is an overarching element. It refers to many components of the body. The heart is really just the manifestation that reflects the mind, the physical components, the emotional components. And so in all of these ways, we give thanks to the Lord. And then he says, I will tell of your wonders. That word wonders there is the word miracles. I will tell of your miracles. You know, we think of the miracles that David experienced. How about that scrawny red-headed kid who picks up five rocks to go take on the nine-foot-tall guy with a spear bigger than him. Does anybody think that may not have been the wisest move? I don't know. But what did David say? I've taken down a lion, Saul. I've taken down a bear. And in the name of the Lord, I will take down this giant. And God did it through him. We, we have seen so many things that went on in David's life that were of an incredibly miraculous nature. Saul is just about to come down upon him and all of his army is there hiding in the caves. And then all of a sudden, the Philistines rise up and start attacking. Oh, that was probably some accident. Just convenient timing. And so all the army has to go protect Israel and David is left fine. And it isn't just these miracles that he's referencing. He's thinking back. He's thinking back on all that God has done with the children of Israel as he drew them out of Egypt through those 12 plagues across the Red Sea, before him at Mount Sinai, the Shekinah glory guiding by day and by night, the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the quail that he brought, the shoes that did not wear off, the clothes that did not wear out, and over and over and over again. God's miracles, displaying His majesty, confirming all that God was doing in their lives. Brothers and sisters, we look back, there's miracles all around us. We have miracles sitting in our congregation. We have miracles that were sitting in our congregation. And all of them are a time for us to stop and to remember, to remember God's wonders. We all have those in our very lives. And they are the things that we must tell. This is, this is the, the proclamation that none can refute. I have seen God do amazing things in my life. I've seen God do amazing things in many of your lives in the short time we've known one another. And we will see God do yet more things. He goes on, I will be glad and exult in you. There, there is this joy that is to overwhelm us 
in our lives. We are to, to proclaim God through all of these difficulties. How difficult is this in the face of the enemy, in the face of the adversary, even in the face of the death of the Son? But he concludes verse 2 then with a song of praise. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. You know, there is something about singing. Some of us at different times in our lives are a little less excited about singing in a corporate venue. Um, I know for a lot of our young people, that's just hard. They just don't really want to sing out sometimes, and that's okay. But that will change, and you need to let that change because that is God expressing himself. There may be some of you that aren't as young that have a little bit of a struggle in singing in a corporate venue. How do you do in your cars? Are you pretty good there? I think I'm excellent. I mean, I, I could certainly be a recording artist. I, I mean, I, there's times where, you know, I got the hand thing going on, try to keep it down. Want pe don't want people thinking, you know, that I'm not Baptist. My, my wife told me early on after I got saved, I gotta be like Howard Hendricks says, part of the frozen chosen. Hands, you know, no higher than four inches above the waist. Never turn them over. Um, but in the car, sometimes I, I get a little carried away. You know, it is that singing. It is that rejoicing that lifts our heart. I love to sing to the Lord. I'm overwhelmed, you know. We had the chance. We, we, the boy, it's the boy, it was the boys last weekend. This past weekend. So we went over to the beach. And uh, on the way over, my wife, she's always messing with my radio. You know, I, I'm pretty much Fernando Ortega only kind of guy. And they're like, Dad, we've heard this a kajillion times. So she's playing with it. And she, you know, she starts getting the shuffle on. And some Christmas songs start coming on. You know, my kids are like, oh, man, Christmas songs in August. What in the world? You know, but it is wonderful to sing those songs. It's wonderful to sing to the joy of Christ. We ought not be singing Christmas songs just at Christmas. I'm just saying. If you don't have a Christmas CD in your car, it's time to go get one, all right? Most of you are driving by yourself or just with your wife. Nobody's gonna know. You don't have to tell me. No confession time necessary. No priest here. No caller. So, you know, this is what we're to do. We are to sing praises to his name. And it is the most glorious thing to partake of. Because it, it is wonderful to recognize what this does. That this gladness and exaltation are the songs that are to be especially on the lips of God's children. We understand these things. We understand the thanks that we ought to give. We understand His wonders. We ought to exalt and sing praises. Spurgeon notes on this second part of this verse 2. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. And I thought when I first read that, isn't that another verse? But he goes, God loves a cheerful giver, whether it be the gold of thy purse or the gold of thy mouth that he presents at the altar. Isn't that good? Whether it be the gold of thy purse or the gold of thy mouth, God loves to hear us sing his praises. You know, he doesn't hear when you miss a note. And one day when we're with him in heaven, we won't miss any notes. But... He doesn't care. He just wants to hear our praises. You know, it, it, we make a joyful noise. It doesn't have to be a good noise, but it has to be a noise, just saying. So let it rip. Nobody's going to look around. 
We're excited about these opportunities. These are the I wills that must guide us. Well, as we come through that part of the first chorus of praise, it leads us to this first subpoint, the first stanza at the throne is what I've titled this first subpoint. The first stanza at the throne. It's in verses 3 to 6. Let me read that section for you. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. And you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. Here is the first stanza of this song. And David turns to the throne for help. Man so often takes his problems into his own hands, don't we? I, I am so guilty of this. Oh Lord, it's just a little thing. I can handle this. You know, I, I can mess up the, the smallest of things. Um, just ask my wife when she cuts me loose in the kitchen with a page of instructions and I, I blow it on the first line. We need to recognize that we must bring our problems to God. And notice what David does. He leaves it with God. Look at all of the second person pronouns in those verses. When my enemies turn, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You sat on the throne. You have rebuked the nations. You have blotted out. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruin. And you have uprooted the cities. It's you, God. It's all of you. I know it's not me. Because you know one thing we can trust, beloved? When we leave it in the Lord's hands, it's never going to get messed up. He never makes a mistake. He's always got perfect care of every situation. And so amidst these adversities, amidst his adversaries, all of these show David and his exaltation in all of this. How God is the one responsible for his reigning over his enemies. When they turn their back, they will stumble and perish before you because of you. Verse 4, that, they have, that you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. This, is, this proclaims God as the ultimate judge of that which is right. He is on the throne judging righteously as that second stanza of verse 4 says. The literal Hebrew here says, you have sat on the throne righteous judge. It is calling God the righteous judge. You know, when we look through the the scripture and we look at the judgments of God, particularly as they come forth in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there's some horrific judgments that are going on there. The flood, uh, the greatest judgment that we have yet known on this planet. And what we see over and over threaded through every component from Genesis really 1 through 11, particularly around the flood narrative, particularly around chapters 6 and 7 and 8, are these interspersed pieces of God's amazing righteousness. You know, go back and read Genesis chapter 7 sometime. You read it, and it seems like this is kind of redundant. It talks about the flood coming, and it talks about God bringing the animals on the ark. 
and it talks about the flood coming and the waters rising, and then it talks more about the, the preparation God makes for Noah and his children and the animals. And four different times there is this cycle. And you think, well, okay, you know, God wants us to get the picture. That's good. I can get that picture. There's something so much more being brought forth there. God is reminding us that over and over again, he provided perfectly for the judgment that was coming. He recognized all that was going to go on here, and he established and showed his grace amidst that judgment. He could have said, you know, Noah, I'm going to send you and your family on the boat. That enough would have been amazing. And I'll go ahead and I'll give you those sacrificial animals so that you can carry forth the rituals. That would have been great too. And then because I'm going to, when you get on the other side, I'm going to allow you to eat all the animals. So I'll give you all the stuff that's good for food, all of the things that are unclean. That would have been great. But he doesn't just do that. Two of every living thing go on that ark. And God brings them to Noah for that. That is God's grace. It is God's grace. So as Noah came off the boat, he wasn't living in this kind of halfway world. Well, most of the animals are extinct now because God killed them, but we've still got a few. No. God's full provision was right there. Can you imagine what Noah was thinking as all of those animals are going off the boat? probably in addition to rejoicing to not feeding them all and a few of the other side effects. But it had to be incredible to see that, to think, you know, they're all going to go out. They're going to start proliferating. This is going to be the new world that is happening right here before me. And all of this is the praise that David brings to you who have sat on the throne, righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. Never is there a judgment that is wrong in God's hand. He will bring to perfection every judgment of all time. It is a wonderful recognition and a daunting thought at the same time. God's judgments are righteous altogether. They are inscrutable. Who can say what God has done? None can cast aspersion upon what he has done. In Psalm 140 and verse 12 we see a, a parallel text to this verse. Psalm 140 and verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. You know, God is always bringing about his justice for the afflicted. That's a wonderful thing for us to remember. It's a wonderful thing for us to pray for as, as we consider those that are downtrodden, as we consider those who are homeless, as we consider those in other parts of the world that do not have enough food to eat and we have a bounty at our table that would feed many families, it is a time for us to reflect and to praise God and to recognize that He will provide for them and that we can keep His provision on our mind, that His work can continue to be washing over us to remind us that He is the one that is carrying forward all of these deeds. In verse 5, God not only deals with the individuals, but with the nations as well as the wicked. He removes their names eternally. A few chapters ahead in the Psalter, in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 28, we read, May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. God will remove them completely. We see the, the same kind of component as Proverbs ask, why does the wicked prosper? The answer, beloved, is that if they do, it is but for a little while. 
God's judgments will come and they will come in perfection and they will come dramatically on those who think that they have escaped, who think that they have duped God. God is not mocked. His judgment will come. Verse 6 becomes a summary of this first stanza before the throne. And he proclaims to them, the enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruin. You have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. The righteous judge will bring about his perfect righteous action. Well, this was the first stanza at the throne. The second stanza is at the gate, beginning in verse 7. The second stanza is at the gate in verses 7 through 10. And there David writes, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And he, he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Just like the first stanza at the throne was this exaltation of God with all these second person pronouns, you, you, you. Now he transitions to this stanza at the gate where he wants to proclaim to all people. And it would be at the gate where that would happen. The gates of the city where the people would all come in and out. And now he starts talking about all the Lord has done. He established his throne. He will judge. He will execute judgment. God is the one who is now the one that is to be praised before all mankind. We're brought to God after his throne for victory over his enemies. He now takes the people to the city gate to proclaim who God is. Verse 7 establishes God eternally. The word abides there in, in verse 7, but the Lord abides forever. That word abides is literally the Lord sits as king forever. You know, this was probably one of the most amazing things during the time of the monarchy. Remember, during the time of Samuel, the people wanted a king like the other nations. We want to be like everyone else. Give us a king, Samuel. And Samuel was very upset about that. And they began to rely upon that king. And, and what did that do for him? Not much, did it? But you know, even though they were relying on a human king, God was always the king. God has always been the king. The Lord abides forever. The Lord sits as king forever. Before time began, throughout all time eternally, God sits as king on the throne. He is the one who we rejoice in. He has established his throne for judgment. Verse 8 exalts again his righteous judgment as it tells us that he will judge the world in righteousness and all of the peoples with equity. There is a perfection to God's judgment. There is a rest that we can have through that. And then in verse 9, David exalts again God's care of the oppressed. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in the time of trouble. He is there for the downtrodden, for all those who are struggling in their lives. It is a place where we can always go, where God would always love to have us come, love to hear us cry out to him in our struggles, in our angst, and in our anguish. And again in verse 10, the last verse becomes the summary of the second stanza at the gate. 
as those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. There is no misplaced love towards God. All that we place towards him, he will return manifold the blessings upon us. God's gifts to us are so incredible in so many ways. And I pray that that is something that you are continuing to reflect on and to continue to understand that God knows that are his and that he will never forget them. You know, I love the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. It is a beautiful picture of Jesus proclaiming his care, his knowledge of us, and his love for us. But in particular, in John 10, 28, he says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Is there better news than that? I can't think of any. He gives us eternal life. And we will never perish. Again, this is one of the things and we talked about on Wednesday night as we were looking through that red track on Catholicism that just gives me so much heartburn when those priests and those other Catholic leaders talk about purgatory. How you're going to spend some time off for a little while with other people lighting candle until you get your sins paid for and then eventually you'll build up enough merit or they will for you that you'll get to heaven. What a farce. What a ripoff! What a taking of this incredible gift that God gives us that we know that the moment that we leave this earth, we will be in his presence. And they say, oh yeah, well you just hang out over here for a little while. What an absolute bummer. And what a lie. What a deceptive ploy. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know our name. And as we put your trust in you, Father, and we need to trust you more, I love Jairus as they came to him and said, my little daughter has died. And he says in, in one of the accounts, my faith is weak. Help my unbelief. Love, that's a, a cry we all need to be making. There's a level of unbelief that exists in all of us at some point or another. The trial in the road, that mountain before us, it seems more than we could ever get over or around. But God is there saying, no, I am here for you. I know your name. You put that trust in me and I'm with you. And I will never forsake, those, forsake you. What a glorious blessing. Well, that takes us from our first chorus of praise to our second main point and the second chorus of praise in verse 11. Verse 11 goes, Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. God's dwelling in Zion. You know, there is, there is a, a very special element to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Mount Zion. It is also Mount Moriah. It is where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him. They are all the same location. And it is there that the temple was built and where Jesus walked and taught where God dwelt in the Solomonic temple and where God yet will dwell in the millennial temple. And to recognize that place and to understand that it is God who dwells in Zion and that we ought to sing praises. 
you know, we cannot take lightly the admonition from Psalm 122 that tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, we, we see some of the stuff that's going on and we think, that is so far over there and those people are so messed up and we just kind of lose sight of it. We can never lose sight of that. That is where God is coming back to dwell. That is where Christ is going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives. And that it will be split in two and all of the glorious truths that we've just been studying in Ezekiel, particularly chapters 40 to 48, they're going to be right there on the land and you're going to see it. We got to be praying for it. I'm excited about it. Those are the things that we sing praises to the Lord and that we declare among the peoples his deeds. We go talk to people about what God has done. Yes, we reflect even as David did back in verse 1 on his wonders. But we reflect beyond that. We reflect at his deeds in our lives. Why did Paul use his testimony so often in proclaiming Christ? Because it was, the, it was the evidence of what God had done that no one could deny. God has done a special work in every one of your hearts that knows Jesus Christ as Savior. No one can deny that work. And that's what we need to tell people. You know, I was the most dirty, rotten sinner you can imagine. And God changed my heart. God picked me up from that mire. He took me and he made me take me from what I was ignoring in all of my life and he showed me the greatest relationships ever. You know, it was, it was not a big deal for me to walk away from an engineering career after 20 years. It wasn't that I didn't like it, I loved it. God showed me what it meant to live by his word and he took what I was forsaking in this most amazing gift of a wife and he made it the most glorious thing that ever I could know on this earth. And I said, you know what? If God can do that on something like me and something like this, imagine what he's going to do on the big things. Everybody needs to know this God. Everybody needs to understand that. Beloved, that's where we need to be. This is what he's telling us. Proclaim his wondrous deeds. Go talk to everybody about what God has done in your life. Nobody can refute it. They may want to talk to you about theology you know, they may want to come to you and, and debate with you different worldviews. Nobody is going to debate your testimony because it is the power of God working in you. And that is what we are to sing praises for. Well, this second stanza, or the second chorus of praise, rather, gives way in verse 12, again, to our first stanza, two stanzas also in the second point. And this is the first stanza against wickedness. The first stanza against wickedness. Like the first chorus of praise, the second chorus has these two stanzas. And in this first stanza, the stanza of wickedness, against wickedness, we see this in verses 12 to 16. Where it says, For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the, the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. 
The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of his own hand. The wicked is snared. Now this second chorus of praise is somewhat of a repeat of the first. There are some different components, but we see a lot of similarity in the second element. Verse 12 speaks of God's judgment. For he who requires blood remembers them. That takes us all the way back again to the flood narrative. Back to Genesis chapter 9. Whereas Noah came off the boat and as God told him that all of the animals were given to him and as he basically repeats the creation narrative that you are to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth and behold I have given all animals to you as food but you shall not eat the animal with the blood in it. For in the blood is the life and whoever takes man's life I shall require his blood from him. So this is reminding us that it is God who brings judgment, who reminds us that he remembers the blood. Remember when Cain killed Abel. And how did God know? The ground was crying out with that blood. God remembers the blood and he requires it from those who shed it. He does not forget the afflicted. Again, what a joyous point for us. Verse 13 becomes an even more personal call to God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, who lift me up from the gates of death. When we get to those times in our lives where are those who are personally attacking us, it's wonderful to have friends around. But there's only one friend that is going to answer that need and it is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the righteous one. He is the one who understands. He is the one who will care for us and take us through every one of those components and through every challenge that may arise who will give us his mind and his eyes to deal with all of those circumstances. He will be gracious to us. He does know our affliction and he will glorify himself in us. But even in this, he praises God in verse 14. And he tells of all God's done, again in the gates, again to rejoice of his salvation. This is what we rejoice in. I am saved. I have no idea why. There is nothing in here that merits it. It isn't because, you know, I can wear a tie when it's a nice, warmish Alabama evening that somehow there's something to merit here. There's nothing None of us got nothing that we can bring. I know that's really good grammar. But that's the reality of the situation. God has given this to me. My salvation is something I cannot explain. But what's better? He wants to give it to you. He wants to give it to you. Beautiful prayer this evening in our corporate prayer time. Join us if you haven't yet. Beautiful prayer tonight. Just as we were reflecting upon God's calling, God's desire to bring his salvation to the children whom he's created, wishing none should perish, but that all would come to a knowledge of repentance. How are they going to know? Romans 10, right? How will they hear without a preacher? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Feet, 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 feet that bring good news. That's you, that's me. We're those who tell of this salvation. We're those who rejoice in what God has done. 
to tell everyone in the gate, to tell everyone through Zion, to tell everyone across this world, look at the influence God has placed in us. You know, I remember for a long time that, uh, that people would say, you know, the Lord's supposed to come back, and, and if we're reading the scripture right, and Zechariah and a few other places, everybody's going to know it at one time. So how's that going to happen? I mean, is there going to be like TV coverage? You know, are we going to be able to see that on the TV? And, um, and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I just kind of am not thinking that's going to happen. And now where's the, Lord, where's the Lord taking us? How instant is the transmission of events and details around this globe? Got your phone? Right? There it is. Whew. And it's gone. And it's viral. Right? God is going to reveal himself in the most amazing ways. And we are all going to see it. And so we must tell of it. And we must let people know of the joy that we know. Verse 15 returns to the same national focus of judgment as did verses 5 and 6. And like our two previous stanza, verse 16 then summarizes. As it says, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. You know, those that are the wicked set the trap for themselves. And God allows them like a bird to be captured in a net. The Lord has shown himself to all people. What a blessing it is to know that as we talk about him, we don't have to convince them. All we have to do is talk about what he's done. Proclaim his excellent glories. Praise him, praise him, Jesus, my blessed Redeemer. Praise Him, praise Him, all of the glorious day long. Well, verse 17 starts our second stanza here in this second chorus of praise. And it is the second stanza of justice. The second stanza of justice that concludes our text in verses 17 to 20. Where we read, The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. The wicked will be judged. The nations who forget God. We've seen God's judgment. We may well see God's judgment upon our own land for the abominations that we commit in approaching 60 million murders of innocent unborn children in the horrors that we commit against one another in the name of righteousness when it is nothing more than bigotry marked with a cross we must understand the needs of the others in our world. We must, as the scripture tells us, to consider others more highly than ourselves. And should God bring judgment upon our nation, we will understand that we are deserving. But the needy will not always be forgotten. And the hope of the afflicted will not perish forever. God is going to care for all of his children, just like he's cared for us. He is losing none of those that are his. All of those that are in the book of life will be there. But how much better for us to do all that we can to get them there now. 
I don't know. I know some of your stories, but I don't know all of them. I, I can't tell you which years you were all saved. But I can tell you, being saved at 37 and a half years old, I would have loved for three months earlier. I would have loved for six months earlier. Oh, I would have loved seven years, eight years, 15 years earlier. All the joy that I missed, all of the continual sin that I wallowed in. Don't we want this for others? Today we want them to know Christ. Today we want them to have that joy. Today we want them to realize the blessings and the glories of the Lord. That the needy are not forgotten. That their hope will not perish if they will but trust in the Lord. Because indeed he will arise. His, his arm, his right, his mighty right arm is still outstretched as Isaiah tells us. He is still bringing judgment. And the fear of the Lord will be put in all men so that the nations will know that he is God. And he has left us for this role. He has left us with this chorus of praise that amidst lament, amidst affliction, amidst difficulty and disaster, personal, corporate, international, God is with us. God is guiding us through it. God is using us in a very special way. This is as you know so much better than I, a very special place where God has exalted his word and his love of the people one for another. This is something that we need to share with our friends, with our neighbors, with our, co our co-workers. Yes, the love of Christ, but the love of Christ that exudes from this body because these are the reasons for joy and for praise. And these are how we show all people the praise that we want them to have. By bringing them, by showing them, by loving on them, by letting others love on them. Are you kidding me? This is a great place. You know, um, my wife was teasing me. We were talking about uh, a social engagement that we were at a number of years back in California. And I was there with Pastor John, and, and there was a, a bunch of folks around, and, and my wife and, and Patricia were bouncing around, kind of being, I'm sure that's hard to imagine with Karen, she's pretty restrained. But um, Patricia can be a, a very outgoing woman as well. And they're bouncing around, talking to all the people. And John and I are just kind of hanging back in the corner, you know, talking. And, and she goes, you know, they, they just didn't want to get out there and, and get with the business of talking to people. You know, that is the way that some of us are here too. But there are others in our midst who just love to shower love on other people. We need to bring them in. We don't have to be those ones who do that. You know, as long as the Lord blesses me with memory, I will never forget the first day walking in the door of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. And right over there was Miss Kay, and right over here was Glenn Talbot. <laughs> it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, and I'm just walking in kind of like, oh, you know, the south, what am I doing? Where am I going? How to even get here? She's immediately, you know, she can see the deer in the headlights look. So she comes over and rescues me. She goes, you must be Scott, right? And so, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do. I got all this stuff and I'm totally inept. And she's lining me out and welcoming me like, you know, don't trip over yourself. Don't hurt yourself here. Set your stuff down. And then Glenn's right there to give me a hug. And, you know, welcome to Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. We're happy to have you here. And I'll never forget that. 
Don't we want others to know that same love? That's a love that doesn't exist in this world. That's a love that wouldn't exist in those two individuals if it weren't for the love of Christ. Because that's what's coming out. And it comes out all over this place. And that is why we sing praise. That is why we have great joy. That is why, even amidst affliction, we too, like the psalmist, can just rejoice in God and say, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of your miracles. I will be glad and exult. I will sing praises to your name, O Lord. May he be pleased to bring more praise to our hearts and lives, more praise even the more that we find affliction and trouble. Because it is there that we will see more of him, more of his glories and mercies, and more of the beauties of his son, and more of the strength of his spirit. May he be pleased to use us and to open our eyes to all of these things.